U.S. Space Force, or USSF, is the newest branch of the American Armed Forces. Operating within the Department of the Air Force, in December 2019, the U.S. Space Force began developing military doctrine for space power and military space systems to protect the U.S. and its allies in this sphere. How did the USSF come to be? Why is it in our interest to have a space force? These questions and many more will be answered tonight. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our members-only program this evening features Deputy Chief of Space Force Operations at the U.S. Space Force, Lieutenant General William LaCory, Jr., the Council's Global Young Leaders Program for students has been a very active during the first year. The U.S. Space Force was kind enough to send the first Chief Master Sergeant of the Space Force, Chief Toberman, to speak virtually to HEB ISD students on April 9th, which engaged almost a thousand students. As this is a members-only program, you are all the sponsors this evening. We want you to know how much we appreciate your support and membership, especially, especially during this last year. I know I keep saying this, but I am truly looking forward to meeting you all of, uh, in person soon. And uh, in the meantime, we'll continue to offer these virtual programs with speakers of interest, such as tonight's program. We have a, a full schedule of virtual programs, so remember to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Now to, to tonight's program. Lieutenant General William LaCory is Deputy Chief of Space Operations for Strategy, Plans, Programs, Requirements, and Analysis. He does a lot. Prior to his current assignment, Lieutenant General LaCory served as the Director of Strategic Requirements, Architectures, and Analysis at U.S. Space Force. He also served as Director of Space Policy for the National Security Council and the Executive Office of the President under both Presidents Obama and Trump. Lieutenant General LaCory entered the Air Force in 1991. Following his remarks tonight, Mike Wadsworth, a member on our board of directors and portfolio manager at MC Smith's Interests will moderate the audience Q&A session. Lieutenant General LaCory, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening. We're very excited for this. Well, Liz, thank you and the World Affairs Council of Dallas for the invitation to talk with you tonight about our new service. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Um, it seems like we may have competing sirens going, uh, so we'll see if we can get through this. But uh, uh, by way of introduction, um, I guess the one thing that uh, would be good for me to start is uh, I go back. I was born in Texas um, when my dad was at pilot training down in Laredo Air Force Base. Um, so I have some roots to Texas. We spent some time down there uh, when I was young. Um, as was already said, uh, I'm General Bill LaQuarrie. The short duty title is the Chief Strategy and Resourcing Officer for the Space Force. Uh, the running joke is that the longer duty title takes both sides of the business card. So I, I go with chief strategy and resourcing officer. Ultimately, that means I'm in charge of requirements and the budget for the service. Um, I'm a 30 year uh, military space professional. Most of that being in the Air Force until uh, the end of 2019 when I became a uh, uh, member of the United States Space Force. And I formally transitioned over as I got to the Pentagon uh, in September of last year. 
Um, I've spent most of my career doing satellite operations, both for the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. Um, I'm the son of a uh, Air Force B-52 pilot, a 30-year veteran. My brother was an intel officer in the Air Force, and my grandfather uh, was a, a member of the 30th Infantry Division in World War II. I've had several uncles also serving in multiple branches of the military. So it's, it's kind of been a way of life for me um, since I was a kid growing up, and, and I'm now at the 30-year point of my own career. It's been a wonderful career. Uh, I've been doing space operations my whole career, which has been a, a, a great career field and continues to be very dynamic. Um, as was mentioned um, prior to my current job, I was the director of space policy at the, on the National Security Council staff during a very uh, exciting time uh, in the last year of the Obama administration, the first year and a half of the last administration. Um, and before that, I had the uh, great opportunity to be the commander of the 50th Space Wing, which is one, was one of our units out in Colorado Springs. It's where we do about 90% of the Department of Defense satellite operations. Uh, most notably for folks on this call, uh, that's where we operate the global positioning system to uh, help everyone navigate from point A to point B. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in my remarks. What I thought I would focus on tonight as scene setting remarks is um, how it is that we got here, um, you know, and the importance of the service. And then I was going to talk for a little bit about what we did in the first year of the service and then what we're looking to do in this second year and beyond. Uh, and then I'll be happy to take any questions that the viewers have uh, and, and we'll see what Mike has to, uh, to offer as we go through that. Um, so by way of starting, um, I think probably most folks on, on this call will uh, remember as I do 30 years ago as the United States was in the middle of Operation Desert Storm, uh, which uh, many have called the first space war. Um, I was a, a senior in college at the time at Boston University as, as that kicked off, but what I remember vividly is sitting in my apartment with two roommates who were also uh, destined to join the Air Force, and we're watching um, live images streaming across satellites um, back to our homes to see um, uh, precision-guided munitions or um, uh, munitions that were guided by the global positioning system. And so we really began to see the first pieces of space and what it benefits us uh, in our American military. Um, not only that, we um, uh, talked about uh, missile warning. So we have satellites that detect the heat signatures from uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, and that those were certainly used during that conflict to detect scud launches and, and protect our troops. Um, as well as using satellite communications, not only to beam the images to your homes, but also to allow our commanders to communicate across uh, long distances um, in the battle space. It was clear at that point that modern warfare had changed. Uh, space was going to provide a significant advantage to our joint force uh, and did so in that conflict. Uh, interestingly enough, however, uh, more than just the American way of war changed, our American way of life changed. Um, you know, the United States Space Force, probably more so than any other service, uh, uniquely touches every single American and, and all the folks around the globe in one way or another on a, on a daily basis. Um, many uh, folks will certainly recognize uh, the ability to navigate with the blue dot on your phone, and that is enabled by our global positioning system, um, a series of satellites that orbit the Earth and, and help us to do navigation. Uh, what some don't realize is that GPS also has a very uh, precise timing signal uh, that is delivered to the ground. And that timing signal is what allows you to pay at the pump when you gas your car up. It's what enables um, trillions of dollars of international banking every year. 
and so it really has um, provided a lot more than just what uh, folks saw of it in Desert Storm. It, it supports uh, billions of users around the world every single day. Um, satellites are also delivering near real-time weather uh, forecasts and news. Um, and, and again, we have 24-7 coverage uh, of missile warning satellite capabilities uh, to protect not only our homeland, but our troops that are deployed around the world. Uh, so quite simply, um, access to and freedom to operate in the domain is a vital national interest for the United States. And we do that in order to do three things, to advance our national security, um, and to enhance our economic prosperity, and lastly, to increase our scientific knowledge as a nation. And so space underpins all, th all three of those things, and, and we have a key piece of that in the United States Space Force. Um, others have seen the benefits uh, from space as well. You know, when we first started um, in the, uh, the space race and started on orbit, it, it really was two countries in the, in the 1950s. It was the Soviet Union and the United States. Today, there are over 60 countries that operate uh, in the space domain. Um, and so it has expanded greatly, all of those countries benefiting uh, from what it is that we do um, and, and what it is that they can do from the space domain. Now, unfortunately, our competitors have also seen the benefits and they certainly are um, actively taking measures to counter the, the benefits that we get and to counter our capabilities uh, in the space domain. Um, the types of threats range from jammers that can uh, jam the signals from the global positioning system, jam communication signals, uh, to lasers that can blind or dazzle satellites, uh, to missiles that can be launched from the ground uh, to destroy, destroy objects in space. Uh, in 2007, the Chinese um, exploded one of their own satellites, um, unfortunately creating a significant amount of debris, thousands of pieces of debris on orbit uh, that we continue to track to this day and have to pay close attention to. Um, China is also in the process of developing a satellite with a robotic arm uh, that certainly could be used for uh, various purposes. And Russia is de uh, developing similar capabilities. And so the combination of those competitors developing uh, threat capabilities and that vital national interest I talked about is really how we ended up with the establishment of the United States Space Force in December of 2019. Now we're the newest member of the United States Armed Forces, the first new military service in 72 years. Uh, and like all armed services, our responsibility is to maintain superiority in our domain, in the space domain. Um, the United States Space Force has three cornerstone responsibilities that we talk about. And the first of those is to preserve that freedom of action, that very freedom of action that I talked about. The second is to enable our joint force uh, lethality and effectiveness. And third is to provide our national leadership with independent options that they can use if they choose. Uh, now, together with our partners in the joint force, with our allies, our commercial partners, we work to ensure a safe, stable, and secure space environment for everyone to benefit from. And so that's really how it is that this Space Force came to be as our, our newest military service. And so now I'd like to pivot the conversation and talk a little bit about what we did in our first year. Our chief, General Raymond, likes to call the first year or likes to talk about the focus of our first year being inventing the force, literally creating a brand new service from the ground up. And so we spent a significant amount of time in that first year focused on our human capital, our people, uh, our organization, our budget and programs, and our partnerships. 
on the human capital front, the way Chief Raymond likes to talk about it, when the National Defense Authorization Act was signed on December 19th of 2020, uh, he was the lone member of the Space Force. Um, quickly thereafter, he hired our uh, chief uh, human capital officer, uh, the very next hire, in order to be able to bring in the rest of the force. But at that time, it was literally him. Um, since then, uh, as of this week, we're just over 5,000 uh, guardians strong. Uh, and, and projecting to grow to a force size of about 16,000 between military and civilian. That will certainly be the smallest of our military services, and we know that. And part of our focus is to um, be able to take advantage of that and to be a lean and agile service. Um, in that first year, we also competitively selected a little over 6,000 um, tech-savvy and diverse airmen from the Air Force who will transfer into the Space Force over the next couple of years. Um, they come to us uh, from what we call uh, shared career fields of intelligence uh, and cyber and acquisitions. And so uh, we will certainly be transferring some amount of uh, airmen in those career fields into the Space Force. There will be airmen that remain in the Air Force that do those missions as well because both services need them. Uh, we also established a detachment at the Air Force Academy. Um, for the time being, the Air Force Academy will train our guardians as well as the airmen that will go into both the Air Force and the Space Force. Um, and they've also created a space warfighting minor that's part of the curriculum now at the Academy. Uh, and so we look forward to continuing to grow the presence there. And the number of cadets that uh, transition into the Space Force each year has continued to grow after the last three years. Um, we've developed specialized training materials that we provide to future guardians as they go to basic training. Uh, they'll go to basic training in San Antonio, much like our, our air counterparts, but there's a portion of that training that's focused on the space domain, and so we've developed those training materials as well. The last thing I would highlight on the human capital front is that uh, one of our chief's priorities is to create the Space Force as a digital service to accelerate innovation. And on that front, one of the things that we've done is we've established 50 software coder positions uh, to be a part of our service and to help us innovate. So lots of activity on the personnel front, uh, closely related to that of organizational changes. Um, the creation of the Space Force has been the largest reorganization in our history uh, from a national security space perspective. We defined a headquarters structure, which is where I fit in. Uh, I'm one of four deputy chiefs of space operations. My job focused on strategy and resourcing. I have counterparts focused on operations, human capital, and then technology and innovation. Um, and we've already uh, streamlined from the original plan um, of about a thousand person headquarters down to about 600. So about a 40% uh, reduction in streamlining there. Uh, and then in our field commands, uh, out in the operational units uh, and other units in the field, we've established three field commands, one focused on operations. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. One focused on training and readiness and one focused on acquisition and development. The last two, we expect to uh, have formal establishments later this year, um, but those three field commands then have subordinate units underneath them. We call our um, 
operational unit that's commanded by a Space Force colonel, a Delta. That's a, a new term in the military organizational construct. Um, each of our Deltas is uniquely mission focused on a single mission. Um, and in the field, um, compared to what we were structured in the Air Force, we've removed two uh, echelons of command in order to speed up decision making, if you will. Uh, the space domain is a fast moving domain, and we certainly need to stay ahead of our competitors. And so one of the ways that we're looking to do that is streamlining uh, that organization in the field. We've also completed the design and begun to establish a space warfighting analysis center, one of our, the priorities for our chief, um, that will begin to work on our force designs. What are the types of capabilities that the Space Force needs in order to meet those cornerstone responsibilities that I talked about previously? We also, at about the eight month mark of the first service, which is really um, fast uh, compar comparatively in history, we published our first doctrine uh, document and in the military, doctrine is our uh, it's a document that we'll use or documents, I should say, that we use to capture our beliefs and our theories of space power. So this first doctrine document is a capstone document that's intended to highlight not only our cornerstone responsibilities that I talked about, but our core competencies and our space power disciplines, the types of people that make up the space force. Now it's kind of a unique story of how we were able to publish that in just about the eight month mark. Um, and that is that uh, even before the new service was created, there were 22 space professionals uh, across multiple services, um, military and civilian and officer and enlisted that got together on their own time after hours, um, virtually like we're doing tonight uh, and said, hey, if this Space Force is really going to become a reality and we do become a separate service, one of the responsibilities of a separate service is to publish doctrine. And so they said, we really need to get after that. And so they, on their own time, drafted um, what is the basis of our doctrine document that we published uh, in August of last year. Um, they, they drafted that, they critiqued it amongst themselves, and then they sent it, emailed it out to mentors uh, in the field and asked for you know, comment and critique. Uh, and they really refined it. So that then in December uh, of 2019, when our service was created, um, that document was ready as a a basis. And two months into our new service, we held a doctrine summit in Colorado Springs, um, where we expanded the group of people that were looking at that, um, got some additional edits, and, and ultimately, uh, in August of last year, published that doctrine document, um, which highlights, again, not only those cornerstone responsibilities, but our five core competencies of space security, information mobility, which is really a lot of the things that I talked about that happened in the Gulf War. It's our traditional missions that provide information to the ground. Um, we also have a core competency of combat power projection, which all services do. Uh, another one of space domain awareness, which is really um, uh, following and understanding all of the things in all domains that could have an effect on our own domain in space. And then lastly, space mobility and logistics. And, and we can talk to some of those if there's interest uh, in the questions uh, and answer. But uh, that doctrine document it was a, a significant uh, accomplishment during that first year. Additionally, we've successfully transferred all of the previous Air Force space missions over to the Space Force. And we've completed a study on the possible transfer of space missions from the other services into the Space Force as well. Uh, and lastly, on the organizational front, 
we've really started to create uh, our initial Space Force culture and identity items. These are things that made a lot of news in the beginning. I call them the iconography of the service, uh, our unique blue stitching on our uniforms, our flag, our motto, um, our seal uh, that was uh, going across the screen before we started tonight. Um, you know, a lot of those things are uh, really, really important to establishing a culture in a new organization. And so those are also pieces of our organizational work. Now, if I pivot to the budget and to programs, one of the other things that an independent service does is it submits an independent budget that it, that it develops to the Department of Defense that ultimately becomes part of the DOD's budget to the president's budget. And we submitted our first independent budget for fiscal year 21, which was about $15.4 billion. And we're in the process of finalizing the fiscal year 22 budget uh, as well. And so um, that is one of the keys to being an independent service is submitting your own budget. And so we're into our uh, second one as we speak. We've also launched several national security space missions um, over the course of the, the, that first year. Uh, we supported the first human space launch from U.S. soil um, in almost a decade. Um, many of you probably watched uh, like I did with great excitement as we returned astronauts uh, to space from U.S. soil, um, uh, sent them into orbit. And uh, if all goes well here this weekend, we'll actually return uh, four astronauts back to, uh, back to the United States uh, on, the, on the Crew Dragon capsule that's due to return uh, tomorrow, uh, weather permitting. Um, and lastly, um, we've, we've started driving enterprise reviews of specific uh, space mission areas instead of what traditionally we would have done by individual space systems. Now we're taking an enterprise approach to it by mission area in order to talk not only about what the Space Force capabilities contribute to each mission area, but others in the Department of Defense and in the intelligence community, uh, commercial industry. How do we bring all those together in an enterprise view uh, where we all kind of cooperate together on uh, specific mission areas? Which is a really good way to pivot into that fourth piece I wanted to talk about for this first year, and that's partnerships. Simply put, there is not a single thing that we do in the domain that we don't rely on partners. And we are certainly stronger in this domain as with all others uh, by maintaining good, strong partnerships. As some examples, now most people will immediately think of international partnerships and we certainly have many of those as a couple examples. Um, we've reached an agreement with the country of Norway to host two communications payloads on two of their satellites. What that does for us is ultimately it saves us on the order of about $900 million um, of the cost of procuring a launch ourselves. It also happens to be that they have the launches ready. And so we're actually gonna put these payloads on orbit earlier than we would have been able to do on our own. Uh, another partnership uh, that is uh, growing is with Japan. They are also going to host a couple payloads for us. In their case, they're going to host some domain awareness payloads um, on some of their version of the GPS system, uh, what they call the quasi-Zenith satellite system. So they will also host some payloads for us. Again, we get a lot of benefit from that. We have other countries that host capabilities terrestrially on the ground uh, for us. Um, and we also work in cooperative forums with uh, many of our allies, just focused on policy, on operations, um, on architectures. And, and so we continue to do that. And the really interesting and fascinating thing uh, to talk to the excitement of the domain, as we've been creating our own service here, um, other countries are following suit. The United Kingdom has announced recently they will be, uh, they have created a UK Space Command. 
the French have also created a space command. NATO is creating a space operations center. Uh, NATO last year recognized formally that space was an operating domain that NATO is very interested in. Uh, and so there's excitement around the world um, in the space domain and, and we look to partner with as many as we can. We've also partnered with members of our own interagency in the US government. Uh, we recent, our chief recently signed with the NASA administrator a, an agreement uh, to collaborate on space policy and uh, standards and best practices for behavior in the domain. Uh, and certainly we share technology, um, not only with NASA, but other interagency partners. Um, and, and last, but certainly not least, uh, is our uh, group of industry partners. Um, Simply put, again, we couldn't do what we do without the strong relationship with uh, the U.S. industry. Um, and, you know, for my entire 30 years, I've worked side by side with industry partners and, and it continues to get better. Um, at our very um, combined space operations center at Vandenberg Air Force Base, um, we have a commercial integration cell now um, that brings um, various industry partners together um, because we all operate in the same domain. And so we share information about what goes on in the domain and we share work on what it is that we're going to do about various activities in the domain. So again, lots and lots of activity going on, um, a lot of it enabled by partnerships. And, and so um, that's probably a good place to stop. You can tell I'm winded talking just about what we did in that first year. Um, clearly uh, a year full of activity, exciting time. Um, but what I'm confident of is that there is far more road ahead of us than we have behind us. Um, there is no lack of things to do. And so what I thought I would close my remarks on is a little bit of focus on what's year two and beyond. And so General Raymond, our Chief of Space Operations, if the first year was called inventing the force, the second year is all about integrating the force. Um, we need to be able to integrate our force um, with many of those partners that I talked about, certainly uh, with our peers in the joint force uh, in order to enhance our security and uh, strengthen our security through integration. Um, deeper integration across that joint force uh, with our interagency partners in the intelligence community and other uh, elements of the government, um, with industry, with our allies and partners, we firmly believe will enhance our competitive advantage in the domain. And so we intend to um, integrate with all of those partners. Um, Chief Raymond, right towards the, uh, the end of the first year, published his um, Chief of Space Operations Planning Guidance where he highlighted his priorities going forward. And we have five priorities. Number one is to empower this lean and agile service that we're in the process of standing up. Number two is to develop joint warfighters and world-class teams. Number three is to deliver new capabilities at operationally relevant speeds. I've already kind of talked to you about how things are fast moving in our domain. And so we've got to keep up and keep pace and stay ahead of our competitors in this domain. Number four goes to where I talked about partnerships and that's to expand cooperation uh, to enhance prosperity and security. And then the fifth one I sort of alluded to earlier as well and that's to create a digital service uh, to accelerate innovation for us. Um, and we're doing that through all kinds of ways. The chief likes to talk about, he wants all of us to speak a second language and that's digital. 
and so um, we've created uh, licenses for every one of our guardians uh, to uh, go to a digital university and, and um, take classes and focus on things of interest to them, um, whether that be artificial intelligence or agile software development, uh, any number of big data analytics, any number of things, uh, everyone's got access and a license and an expectation that we're going to go um, learn some of those aspects of things and then bring that to what it is that we do as members of the Space Force. Um, we will continue our partnering integration. Um, certainly, um, I, I talked about interagency partnering. And in January, the very uh, beginning of our second year, the United States Space Force became formally became the 18th member of the intelligence community. Um, all the other services and many other agencies are a part of that intelligence community, and now we are as well. Um, the Director of National Intelligence and her staff uh, have been phenomenal um, at, uh, at partnering with us, and we look to continue that. Uh, clearly, intelligence is critical to what it is that we do in the domain, um, and we look to continue that piece of things. Um, as for integration with our joint force, we've begun working on how we present forces uh, to the Department of Defense, uh, and we'll continue that through this year. Um, as a service now headquartered at the Pentagon, um, the Pentagon has numerous processes that are what drive the Department of Defense. Um, and so we as a brand new service are plugging into all of those processes. One of the processes or two of the processes that I participate in are the Joint Requirements Oversight Council. Um, that's where we define all of our requirements as a space force and then integrate with the rest of the force. And then I already alluded to the budget process. Um, but the Department of Defense at the Pentagon also um, works on developing new co joint concepts, uh, joint war games. We're plugging into all of those areas as this new military service um, to uh, explain what it is that we have to offer and find new ways to cooperate with our joint partners. Um, allied militaries, I already alluded to, are following suit. And so we're looking uh, to partner with each and every uh, one of them uh, because, again, if we're comparing notes as um, mutual operators in the domain. Uh, we certainly will be able to um, resource share. Uh, we'll be able to problem solve together. And we believe that um, by creating a coalition of like-minded nations, we will be successful in the space domain as well. Um, I mentioned commercial partnering already. Um, let me talk about a couple more examples there of what we look to do going forward. Uh, we're working right now on an enterprise satellite communications uh, approach that will combine not only the military satellite communications satellites that we uh, certainly procure on a regular basis, but also commercial satellite communications. Uh, there's an organization that used to be part of the Defense Information Systems Agency who was responsible for procuring commercial SATCOM leases. Uh, Congress uh, several years ago moved that organization into the then Air Force Space Command and now they are a part of the Space Force. Uh, and so we're having them sit side by side, uh, virtually at least, um, with those who are procuring our military satellites so that now what we ideally will offer users of satellite communications is a hybrid architecture uh, whereby they can leverage military satellites, they can leverage commercial satellites. At the end of the day, a user of communications doesn't really care which um, of those satellites they're using. They want to get their message from point A to point B. Uh, and by using both, we believe we'll have a more resilient uh, satellite communications architecture. Uh, another place uh, where we're partnering very closely with commercial industry is on space domain awareness. We certainly have our own capabilities that uh, monitor what goes on in the space domain, but there is a booming industry 
commercially in the United States, also developing capabilities to monitor what's going on in the domain. And we've established a commercial marketplace whereby government customers can um, see what data is available from the commercial side and procure that uh, to support the various missions uh, that we do from a government perspective. So again, more data to allow us to know what's going on in the domain. Um, and then probably the last one I would highlight tonight uh, is an area called um, space-based environmental monitoring. So think of that as, uh, as you watch the evening weather forecast, all of that data or much of it is coming from satellites. Um, we're moving not we're moving away from relying just on purpose-built satellites to do weather uh, from a military perspective and leveraging commercial data, uh, leveraging allied data that's available. Uh, again, bringing multiple data sources together um, in order to uh, provide additional capabilities. We've got a, a commercial weather uh, data pilot uh, that we're getting ready to start uh, that will see just how can we use commercial weather data combined with ours uh, to be able to do a better job of that space-based environmental monitoring. Um, so with that, I'm gonna catch a breath. Um, hopefully that gives you a feel for not only why we're here as a new service, um, but also what we did in that first year and where we're headed. Um, and with that, I'm gonna pause and, and turn it back to Mike. I think this is a great place to begin to take some of your questions and, uh, and happy to take whatever uh, comes in. Lieutenant General LaCroy, thanks. That's fascinating. I wrote down a ton of questions and I'm, we have a ton of questions in the Q of A, so we'll get to as many as possible. I want to tell you in advance that apparently there is construction going on in my building, so I've sent a note upstairs, but if you hear a loud roar in the background, I may mute on and off here. I apologize for that. Uh, I want to start, uh, there's a ton of questions here, but I really want to start with a question here that my friend Mike Capps asked, which is how will the Space Force incorporate space operations and acquisitions in other DOD and IC offices like the Defense Missile Agency or the Space Development Agency? Sure, uh, so great question. Uh, and that goes to some of that interagency partnering that I was talking about. Uh, so let's see, a good place to start. I mentioned in the comments that one of the things that we're establishing that General Raymond wanted to establish was a Space Warfighting Analysis Center. Um, that's a part of our Space Force service, and they're working on force designs. And so I'm going to uh, give you an example of one that they're working on right now, and that's uh, the ability to do missile warning and missile tracking. And the two agencies that Mike cited, uh, the Missile Defense Agency and the Space Development Agency, both clearly work in this space, as well as uh, does the Space Force. So uh, this Space Warfighting Analysis Center has begun to do analysis of the various capabilities and technology that's available, as well as the types of threats uh, that are out there, the types of missile threats that are out there. And they've they're in the process of developing a force design that would say we need this type, these types of capabilities in, in these types of orbits. As a part of doing that, they've begun to socialize that with entities outside the Space Force to include the Missile Defense Agency and the Space Development Agency. And the idea being, uh, I alluded to earlier that we are trying to move away from um, individual satellite focused things to enterprise mission areas. And so missile warning, missile tracking is a great example. And so um, by comparing notes on what we see in our analysis, and talking to the Space Development Agency and the Missile Defense Agency, we can talk about how we share the responsibility uh, for that missile warning, missile tracking mission. Uh, 
Um, we're also beginning to socialize that within the Department of Defense uh, so that they understand how it is that we're going to cooperate with other elements uh, of the U.S. government. And so in a way, uh, the chief's hope is that we can use this Warfighting Analysis Center and our force designs to help unify the community, if you will, and synchronize the efforts of the community um, so that we're not being duplicative, we're being complementary. And so hopefully that helps answer that question a little bit. It does. Carolyn Fangman asks, the military traditionally has an association with the deployment of weapons in a certain battle space, land, sea, air. What does the weaponization of space really look like? Are space, what really are space weapons? How are they deployed and to what end are they deployed? That's a fairly open-ended question, but I, you may have some commentary that would answer that for her. Happy, happy to talk about it. Um, thanks for the question, Caroline. Uh, so I alluded to in the beginning, one of the reasons that we exist now uh, is because not only did our peers and our, our uh, allies see the benefits of space, but we have competitors that, that have also seen it. Uh, and so just to give kind of a range of the types of threats that are, that are already out there, um, I mentioned uh, jammers that have the ability to jam the signal from the global positioning system to, a, to hamper navigation and timing, um, to jam communications networks, uh, lasers that are uh, based on the ground that can uh, blind or dazzle satellites. Um, we have seen certainly uh, missiles that can launch from the ground um, and target satellites on orbit. Um, cyber capabilities, uh, absolutely uh, adversaries are pursuing there. Um, so that's kind of a, a range of the, of the threats, if you will. Uh, and so one of the reasons the Space Force was created uh, was to preserve our freedom of action in the domain and to protect and defend our vital national interest. Um, one of those core competencies that I talked about is combat power projection. Every service who's responsible for superiority in their domain has that uh, in one of their focus areas and, and we're no different. And so we're in the process of trying to find the right ways to protect and defend the capabilities that we have on orbit, not only uh, to protect the ability of our joint force and the advantage our joint force gets, but we're really doing it uh, for the entire American public and our allies. Uh, because as I alluded to, uh, it, space has not only changed our modern way of war, it's changed our American way of life. And and it's really important. And that's one of the primary reasons that our service was created. A good transition question there. David Sanders had asked, there are people who believe that we might, in addition to the Space Force, need a separate, separate branch of the service solely to focus on cybersecurity. Is it time for the U.S. to rethink our branches of services and, and realign those to maybe break cybersecurity out into its own area? Uh, so that, that's a, a fascinating discussion and absolutely a valid debate. Um, let me focus a little bit on cyber as it relates to us. Um, you know, th there's really hardly anything that we do uh, in the space domain that doesn't rely on cyber. I mean, the, our ability to command and control satellites, to operate satellites, requires a ground segment that has cyber capability, and it requires a link from that ground segment to the on-orbit segment. And so cyber is certainly a key piece of that. Um, we partner uh, very closely right now with U.S. Cyber Command. So from a combatant command perspective, our, our um, uh, warfighters, there is a combatant command solely focused on cyber as there is um, on the space domain. So U.S. Cyber Command is definitely one of those that we work with on a regular basis. And then our peers in the Department of the Air Force, the United States Air Force, um, really has a significant piece of the cyber 
uh, mission as well, and we continue to partner with them. Uh, and just as important as protecting and defending our on-orbit assets is the cybersecurity of our ground segment and the links. And so um, absolutely uh, critical for what it is that we do. I'll stop short of, uh, of predicting the future of, of when we may end up with a cyber service, but I can tell you that it's critically important to what we do every day. Very good. I've got a couple of questions here I'm going to try and combine because they're close. How does a new branch, you've talked a lot about what you've gotten done the first year in the culture of the organization, but a new branch of the military clearly establishing its own credibility and its identity as an independent of its sister branches is an important thing. Do you have any feeling for whether Space Force would ever become a completely independent branch of the armed services or would it continue with a primary relationship with the Air Force similar to what the Marine Corps has with the Navy. And the second question that sort of dovetails into that is, how do you see being part of the Air Force? How do you see what you're doing? How do you interact with the Army and the Navy and the other forces? Those two questions, I think, kind of go together. And I'll let you hit that in, in any order that makes sense. All right, let's let's start with the first piece. Um, so the reality is it's uh, it's Congress and our political leadership that established the United States Space Force, um, combination of obviously Congress, uh, which you know we benefited from uh, bipartisan and bicameral support um, for many many years now, um, and. Uh, you know, ultimately they uh, presented the National Defense Authorization Act, which then the president uh, signed into law. Um, the way that they decided we would do this for the time being is to be a part of the Department of the Air Force. And I can tell you uh, that we are here, we stand on the shoulders of many airmen or space professionals who were airmen um, over the last, you know, many, many years. Um, and we, enjoy, we continue to enjoy a very, very close working relationship with our sister service peers in the Department of the Air Force. Um, I mentioned that year two is about integrating the force. Um, we need to do that not only with the Air Force, uh, but also with the rest of uh, our joint force peers. And so, you know, it's been a focus of each of ours on the headquarters staff to go out and meet each of our counterparts uh, in the other services to, to begin to establish relationships. Um, we've got very good working relationships with my counterparts in, in all of the other services, as well as on the joint staff. Um, and, uh, you know, they have all been incredibly helpful and, and welcoming, as a matter of fact, to us as a new service. Uh, you know, one of the things that happened as Chief Raymond became our first Chief of Space Operations, uh, he was brought in as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and, and certainly was welcomed in there as, as one of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, and so I anticipate continuing very strong relationships with all of our uh, sister service counterparts, certainly with our Department of Air Force counterparts in the U.S. Air Force, we sit ultimately side by side in, in the same corridors in the Pentagon, uh, just by way of uh, the way things have worked out. Uh, there's no plans to create a hexagon now that we have a uh, sixth service. Uh, so we got to fit in where we can in the Pentagon. Uh, and that's side by side with our counterparts on the Air Force. And, uh, you know, it's been a great partnership. There are many things actually that the Department of the Air Force uh, will provide for us as the Space Force. It's probably uh, good to point out here that the Space Force, as a part of being lean and agile, I mentioned those deltas that we have in the field and they're purely focused on individual mission areas. That means many of the supporting functions that are required to perform missions uh, are going to be done by the United States Air Force. Um, and so we will be partnering um, for eternity um, as far as some of those support things go because we know we're going to be a small service and we need to stay mission focused and so there's a very close partnership with the air force there as well 
That's a great transition to the next question. Christine Buchanan asked if the, if the Academy has been geared toward future pilots, i.e. those who want to fly planes. Is that true? And if so, it, do you anticipate issues in persuading Academy students to leave the cockpit for a computer, for lack of a better, better way to phrase it? I'm going to start with the last part of the question and say that, no, we do not anticipate any issues whatsoever with cadets being interested in coming to the Space Force. Uh, as a matter of fact, over the last three years, we've grown from, uh, as a matter of fact, I was just in a meeting with General Raymond earlier today, and he was talking about, um, we had 32 cadets uh, several years ago express an interest to come into this into the uh, service and so uh, they have last year it was 116 cadets or i'm sorry it was uh, 96 cadets that were transferred into the service coming out of the academy and this year will be over 100 so the excitement continues to grow um, that's not to say that there won't be people very interested in becoming pilots as well uh, i have one of those in my own family uh, he went through the reserve officer training corps but my son is uh, right now a uh, strike eagle pilot in the air force um, so F-15Es, uh, so, but we don't think that there'll be a problem uh, with the excitement. I mean, we have seen, I mentioned already, there were um, over 6,000 people that we've selected to transfer in uh, from the Air Force. This year, we're beginning to do inter-service transfer boards. Uh, I think we're on the order of about 3,700 applications from other services. Uh, so I, I think we're in a good spot with an exciting domain and lots of uh, challenging work to go around that uh, that will be okay there. Now let me pivot back to the beginning of the question, which I think was along the lines of, isn't the academy really designed to produce pilots? Correct. Yes, it's designed to produce pilots, but the Air Force Academy has done a great job of producing uh, space professionals as well. Now um, that we are a separate service, um, they're producing guardians that will commission in as second lieutenants at the very same commissioning ceremony that the other Air Force Academy cadets come into the Air Force. Uh, but they've been doing that for a long time. I have many friends uh, that I've had for many, many, many years that graduated from the Air Force Academy and came into the space business. Uh, and so, you know, there will be different interests for different cadets, um, but uh, the Academy has embraced it for a long time. And as soon as the service was created, they said, hey, we really need to create a detachment here that's solely focused on the training that we do uh, for future guardians. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had a colonel that used to work for me in Colorado Springs that is, is heading up that detachment right now and doing a great job of, of continuing to get the excitement uh, and to bring new guardians in from the Air Force Academy. I would be remiss as a reserve officer training corps uh, commissionee to, if I didn't highlight that that's another way that we bring guardians into the service and we're seeing equal excitement uh, from, the, from the ROTC ranks as well. Um, I follow my son's uh, ROTC detachment and my own ROTC detachment online. And, and I can see the excitement with uh, many of the cadets that are looking forward to becoming guardians. And so we look forward to bringing any and all into the service that are interested. This would be a good place for me to say, as somebody who had their granddad in the 30th infantry, your dad was an Air Force pilot, and now your sons are doing that. Four generations, at least, of service. Thank you. Uh, it, it, that, seem, that seems trite and a truism, but it clearly has been something important to your family. And as an American, I just want to say thank you for that. My, right. list, my list of questions is growing, so I'm going to try and combine two that feel like the opposite side of the coins, and you can hit this in either order you want. Emily Basto asked, what do our alliances think of the establishment of the Space Force? Does it help us foster trust with our alliances in the rest of the world? And at the same time, Stephen Robb asked, you emphasize staying ahead of our potential adversaries. 
Do you have any kind of early assessment that you could share about where the aspect of the mission is in this very early period? So the same coin, but two sides. What are our what our allies think about the Space Force and, and how do you think we're doing compared to folks that maybe aren't our allies? Yeah, so let's start with the first piece of that. I, I'll give the short answer first. Absolutely. I absolutely think that our allies um, uh, are uh, in agreement with us, are excited by the fact that uh, the Space Force was created. Um, COVID has probably been the only limiting factor to the number of allies coming to Washington, D.C. to meet with um, our chief, as well as some of us uh, on the Space Force staff, um, to talk about how it is that we can partner and strengthen relationships. At the end of the day, um, if we are operating as a coalition of like-minded countries, uh, and we're working together not only on shared capabilities, but we're also working together to talk about um, uh, responsible behavior in the domain and, and the types of things that we as, as like-minded nations need to do from a responsible behavior perspective, it becomes much easier to highlight unsafe and irresponsible behavior as well, but to do that as a coalition or as a group of allied countries. Um, so uh, we're seeing tons of that. As, as I mentioned before, several countries uh, have also now started to create their own space organizations. Um, the way I would describe um, early returns is uh, we remain um, the best space force in the world, um, but we know that our adversaries are pursuing capabilities to counter that. And so one of the reasons our service was created was to stay ahead of that threat. And so um, it's, uh, it's incumbent upon us in working with our allies in growing uh, the number of allies that we're working with uh, to be able to develop capabilities to stay uh, one or two steps ahead of our competitors here in the future. Very good. Pivot to a little bit of different conversation, but it's an interesting question. I think Erwin Siegel asked your thoughts on what are, are the forces thoughts on the solution to the massive amount of space junk present now and obviously growing in the future. I know that may fall a little bit outside the bailiwick of what you guys are doing, but your thought about the number of things floating around up there and as that continues to grow, the issues that that creates. Uh, great question, Erwin. Uh, so one of our responsibilities currently is to uh, monitor what goes on in the domain, and, and we currently track tens of thousands of objects in the, in the space domain. Many of those are satellites, but far more are pieces of debris. They may be pieces of old rocket bodies that um, uh, are still on orbit. Um, there are still thousands of pieces of debris from that uh, Chinese anti-satellite missile test uh, that they did in 2007, and so we continue to monitor those. Um, as I alluded to, uh, other uh, industry partners are also monitoring, but the other uh, really interesting thing that's going on right now, and we're very encouraged by it, is that there are numerous entities trying to figure out ways to uh, address the debris problem. One of the things that we do is we try to, uh, as we design our missions, uh, make sure that we are uh, leaving as little as possible uh, on orbit other than the operational satellites. Um, but we know there are other um, entities that are pursuing capabilities to uh, be able to potentially harness that debris and at a minimum move it out of operational orbits. Uh, one of the unique things about the space domain is, is we're, uh, we're bound by, I guess it's not unique, but we're bound by physics. Our physics happen to be different than the air domains. We're bound by the laws of Kepler, uh, which means that our satellites are in predictable orbits. Um, and those are the orbits that we need to keep clear of debris so that we can put operational capability there. And so um, we're encouraged by many of the uh, approaches to uh, trying to handle the debris problem and, uh, and certainly um, 
look to uh, continue to partner with those organizations because it will benefit all of us in the domain uh, if we have ways of handling the, the debris issue that's there. Very good. I'm going to combine two more questions that both hit the same subject, a little bit of spin. Does the Space Force formally have as part of their mission to prepare strategies and capabilities to deal with any potential non-Earth-based threat, which I assume could mean UFOs, could mean asteroids, could mean a number of things. Then a second question that followed right on the heels of that, do you believe UFOs are legitimate threats to national and international security, and how would the Space Force define, in quotes, UFO? Any comments you would have on either one of those? Um, I don't know that the Space Force has a personal definition, and, and I, I like the simple explanation of the acronym, anything that's an unidentified flying object. Um, but, and I guess in this case, the, the purpose of the question may be an unidentified orbiting object. Um, for right now, our cornerstone responsibilities, as I mentioned before, are to preserve freedom of action in the domain, which for the time being is really focused on um, man-made uh, capabilities that might counter us. Uh, to enable joint force lethality and effectiveness, and then to provide independent options for national leadership. That tends to be focused on what we call geocentric orbit, so orbit around the Earth. Um, when such time as um, the United States continues to go beyond, um, and if there became resource conflicts beyond, beyond geocentric orbit, uh, then at some point the, the U.S. Space Force in protecting and defending or preserving freedom of action and domain uh, might advance to that piece of things. But for the time being, we're, we're again, focused primarily on the, uh, the man-made threat. Certainly. Uh, Mary asked, does the Space Force, as part of what you're doing, see any ballistic missiles as they would be coming to the U.S. and working on defeating the ballistic missiles in the air, i.e. Reagan's Star War capabilities program from the 80s. Is any of that sort of falling y'all's bailiwick? Does that end up falling in a different area of the DOD? Is there any interface between Space Force and that question? So missile warning is absolutely one of the capabilities and the mission areas that we're responsible for. Um, as I mentioned, right at the very beginning, as we talk about the Gulf War, um, we had systems that were designed at that point in time to detect intercontinental ballistic missiles. So think missiles that are going across multiple continents, they burn for a long time and they're, they're very hot. Um, and so those capabilities that we had on orbit, even back in the, in the Gulf War, um, detected those types of capabilities. What we found we could do uh, during the Gulf War was um, to modify the ground systems to be able to not only detect those very hot and long burning intercontinental ballistic missiles, but also theater ballistic missiles. And so um, absolutely that continues today. Uh, as a part of the Space Force, uh, we have a system today on orbit called the Space-Based Infrared System, which simply put detects infrared energy um, as it's uh, um, uh, going through from a missile launch. And, and that is one of our responsibilities to provide that missile warning, um, not only for homeland defense, but we also provide it for theater uh, missile defense to um, warn our deployed troops worldwide, as well as our allies. So it's definitely a mission area that we have. Very good. This has been fascinating. I'm going to ask you one last question that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about before, but I'm just curious. Uh, 30 years of service, you now have this role as a Space Force. Are you ever going to get to get on a rocket and go into space yourself? I'll tell you what, I would love to do it. I think the odds of me doing it wearing a uniform are slim to none. I am uh, beyond the age uh, and, and fitness level that uh, NASA is looking for, I can promise you that. Um, 
We have several Space Force astronauts. One of them is due to return home uh, tomorrow. Uh, Colonel Mike Hopkins was at, was our first Space Force astronaut, um, actually transitioned from the Air Force to the Space Force while he was on orbit on the International Space Station on our first birthday, pretty neat. Um, I would love to do it. I think the only way that I'm gonna be able to do it is number one, I have to convince my wife that it's a really interesting thing to do. And number two, the cost of commercial space tourism is gonna to have to come way, way down for me to be able to afford it. For the time being, I will cheerlead here from Earth. If I get the opportunity, I would jump at the chance, but uh, that, that is probably a, uh, a distant chance at best. <laughs> Well, I look forward to the day. If I get to see you up there, that would be fantastic. Uh, Lieutenant General LaCroix, thank you so much. It's been a great program. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. We appreciate the time that your, your associates spoke with our students at HEB a little bit back, over a thousand students impacted by that. It's tremendous. And for our audience, if you've missed one of our programs, you can head on over to our YouTube page at DFW World to catch up. Thanks, everybody, for your questions, for participating in this great evening, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Have a great night.